Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Again, good to see all of you. My name is Alex, one of the pastors here, and uh, I have the privilege of walking through the two verses that my wife Jana just read for us. From James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and go there, open up or scroll in your app to James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And so we've got about five or six weeks left in the book of James as we've been journeying through, uh, roughly a 16-week journey through this letter from Jesus's younger half-brother known as James. He was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, and he was writing to Christians who had been persecuted, run out of Jerusalem, and the majority at this time in history had settled in the modern-day country of Syria. So James is writing to a number of house churches, and he's addressing them as an apostle, speaking authoritatively under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so James's word to them, because it's inspired by God's Spirit in first century Syria, is still speaking to us today in 21st century Seattle as we are seeking to be conformed to the image of James's older brother, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so I don't know if this has been good for you walking through the last several weeks. It's been very good for me. It's been very challenging (laughs) every single week. It's like James is just blunt and in your face. And uh, really, he doesn't leave a whole lot of room for going, I just don't know what he's really trying to say there. I wonder how you might interpret that. I wonder if there's like, is there another way to get around this thing? Because it just feels a little too in your face. And he just doesn't. There's no weird you know, hermeneutical, interpretive gymnastics that we can do to get around things like stop speaking bad about each other. I don't, there's not like a whole lot of, I don't know what he's trying to say. He's blunt. And uh, I think that's probably very helpful for the majority of us just to get right to it. So he's encouraged the church to persevere, to resist temptation, to be intentional about listening to one another, uh, to be about welcoming one another, into worship and not merely hang out with our own friends and showing favoritism. Uh, James has pressed us toward friendship with God rather than seeking to be friends with the world. It's not saying don't befriend people unlike us, but it is saying we are to fall out of love with the patterns of the world. Uh, He's admonished us to seek the wisdom that comes from above. In chapter three, he began the, the, remember the discussion on the tongue, how your tongue can set things ablaze, and that's where James even mentioned, we all stumble in many ways, remember that? And then begins this discussion on how we're to use our tongues, and we talked about, you know, uh, knowing when to speak and when not to speak. And so today, uh, he picks up again this discussion, he circles back to this discussion on how we speak to or about one another in the church, and not just in our church, but in other churches and other Christians around the world. How Christians speak about or to one another matters big time. And so if you've been a believer for any amount of time, uh, then you know that this is something that we as Christians constantly need to be reminded of and admonished in and sometimes corrected uh, because the temptation to speak poorly about one another surfaces again and again. And that's because the church is a family. And the longer you're around your family, the easier it becomes 
to use words that divide, that harm, that tear down rather than love and encourage and build up. When we're familiar with one another, we can tend to be short and sharp and ugly. And James is saying, hey, I know God brought you together as his children. Let's not take one another for granted. Let's say things truthfully to each other. But let's always remember to do it in the context of gentleness, kindness, and compassion. So before we go any further, uh, I just want to pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump in. Father, we come to you in the perfect name of Jesus. We're gathered by you, through you, and for you. And so we want to hear from you today. Would you speak to us now through your spirit who inspired your perfect word? And would you please tune our hearts and our minds to hear what you would have to say to us today? Father, I myself, I acknowledge my own shortcomings that I have not always used my tongue to bless and to build up, but rather to divide and tear someone down. And I thank you for the forgiveness that I've experienced. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who have spoken evil against one another and are feeling guilt or shame or remorse and regret. I pray they would sense your comfort. I pray for those who have been on the receiving end of sharp words this morning, words that have harmed. I pray for healing, and I pray that your truer word would ring loud in our spirit. So thank you for hearing our prayer. Speak to us now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's dive into our two verses for the day. Um, if you... And you could actually spend a whole sermon on just one verse or even just the, the first word. You know, so it's, the Bible's like that. If you've not been a Christian for very long, the Bible is very interesting and it can go on and on. So we're just gonna spend our time today just looking at these two verses. So here we go. James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So here it is, the very black and white, no exceptions. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So the question becomes right away is, um, aren't these Christians? And shouldn't they already know this? Like, be kind, didn't your mom teach you anything? Like, kinda, why do Christians actually need to be told this very kind of obvious, or it should be obvious thing? And here's the answer. Because the fact is that though they knew not to speak evil of one another, their orthodoxy had not translated into what's called orthopraxy. They had orthodox doctrine, right? Remember in chapter two, you believe in one God. Good, good, that's great. Your theology's down. You got your theology. You believe in one God, good. Even the demons believe that and tremble. The idea is this, is that if your orthodoxy isn't corresponding to your orthopraxy, that is putting it into practice, James says there's a massive problem. That to say, I, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus and all these things, but it doesn't actually translate into your gritty life, then James goes, oh, no, you don't just have bad theology, you have dead theology. Your faith is actually dead. It's not alive. So don't deceive yourself. That's his words. Like, don't deceive yourselves. It's like, well, how does that happen? How do you go from orthodoxy to orthopraxy? I learned a new word the other day. It's called orthocardia. That is, right doctrine, right practice can only come out of a heart that's been made right. Orthocardia. To have a heart that has the desire 
to do the will of God and then practically apply that in the day-to-day. The church had drifted away from that and grown comfortable with speaking ill against or about one another. And so James knows that God has more in store for the family of God than to merely mimic the world that speaks down to or evil against others. And James is under no illusion. Remember, he said we all stumble in many ways. James is under no illusion about his own self, going, I have not arrived yet. I'm not in heaven. I still, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm justified. I'm being sanctified. I'm becoming more like Jesus. But I'm not there yet. Glorification is coming one day. But right now, I struggle. I fight. Any Christian feel like you're struggling today? Like going, yes, this is a hard, long slog. I've been a Christian for over 20 years and going, I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting, hanging in there. James goes, one day, the temptation to speak ill about one another, it won't be there. But right now, it is a temptation in our flesh. So we have to address that head on as followers of Jesus. And so one of the ways in which we have got to be constantly on guard about as we practice following Jesus as his followers uh, is how we actually speak about one another. And so very plainly and very bluntly, I don't know of anything that can destroy a church, people's faith, relationships, quite like gossip, slander, and evil speech. Many of us have had a front row seat to that kind of stuff. And so James says this ought not be. And this is a challenge to us because we tend to think of sin in categories that one sin is greater than another. Murder's worse than lying. And certainly the consequences of murder and lying are different. But James has said, no, 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 if you break one law, you've broken the whole thing because God's whole will, whole nature, whole essence, whole character is represented in the law. You break one part, the whole thing comes apart. And so James is going, guys, don't fall asleep at the wheel of your life thinking, well, I'm not killing anybody, so I must be fine. James is going, no, 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 God actually cares about how you feel about others and whether you say those things or not, that God is interested in every part of our lives. So nothing tears a body apart quite like evil speech of one another and slander. And nothing builds up and strengthens the body of Christ and fills it with light quite like our speech when we go to one another and we say true things, when we point out the winds, when we are intentional with building up, with encouraging, with admonishing, with fanning into flame. The gospel, right? This stuff that, that, all this stuff, this gritty stuff that we do as believers, it's all based on communication, on how we speak to one another matters. And so, if you go back to the last time in your life in which you were genuinely inspired to walk with Jesus, you will not trace it back to a time where somebody dumped a bunch of guilt and fear and intimidation and bullying and shame. and That didn't light a fire in you to walk with Jesus. It might have corrected your behavior for about an hour, 
but it, it goes away. The times that you can go back to the moment where you go, when was I most in love with Jesus? When I, when I actually was okay with like denying my flesh and like practicing the spiritual disciplines that we have. When was the time? You can always trace it back to somebody actually encouraging you. There's usually somebody with flesh and blood looking at you saying something like, I love you. I believe in you. You can do this. Always like that. It's like, why is that? Because Christianity is not a mere Western privatized relationship that I do in my head only, between me and God only, and it's this private thing. That's not Christianity. Christianity is something that certainly I have a relationship with God, but it instantly translates into the horizontal, into our actual living relationships. It's so good. James says, brothers, that he reminds us, brothers and sisters, we're not to speak evil against each other. In fact, the person that you're tempted to speak evil against is still somebody that Jesus died for. And so James is saying, that's just not the way it's to be. This doesn't mean we don't speak truth to power. Jesus had no problem doing that, both with the Pharisees and with the Romans. But it does mean that we're mindful that as we say true things, we stay reminded that, well, we're not the judge. So, what motivates the Christian life is grace. Solomon was right when he said, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So words can bring about division and discord, or they can bring healing and insight and hope. So James is teaching us here again that the Christian faith is one that translates very practically in our relationships. Why is he hung up on this and why does it matter to actually unpack this for just one more minute? Listen, the entire Christian faith can be boiled down to one word, relationship. The whole thing runs throughout from cover to cover in scripture and in our practice in our churches all over the globe. Listen, God himself is a relationship. Let that sink in. The Trinity The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit exist in and as a relationship. Then this relational God overflows in creativity and creates human beings, not out of a necessity, but out of a desire. He didn't need us. He just made us because he wants us. And then what did he make us as? Not as impersonal robots and computers. He made us interdependent on one another in which we have to relate to each other. Then when sin enters the world, what happens? Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship within ourselves is broken. And our relationship with each other is broken. Jesus comes on the earth, and what does he do? He enters relationships. He had a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters and friends. And then what did Jesus do in his death? He reconciled us to God, restoring that relationship, sends us the spirit, binding us together to continue to work on our relationships. And what happens in the last day when Christ returns and we're taken to glory? We live in the kingdom of God where there is no sin breaking our relationships. How we speak to or about each other 
matters. And so what we're trying to do as Christians is to see the kingdom of God come to the earth in everyday tangible ways. And one of the clearest ways we can do that is through how we speak to and about each other. So what does James mean by speaking evil specifically? Uh, The Greek word literally means to, to slander or to defame. So if you're taking notes, just drop down a couple of scriptures. Here you go. One uh, comes from Numbers 21.5. And the people spoke against God. Here's that word. Don't speak against one another. Right? The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and our souls loathe this worthless bread. Right? This, this thing that they're doing in Numbers where they're complaining about God providing manna every day and they're just so sick of it and they start speaking and cursing against God and Moses. And then there's another place over in Psalm 105. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I'll destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. It's how God thinks about our speech. Uh, Alec Matir, old Irish theologian, uh, I got to study under his son in England. He wrote a, a fantastic little commentary on James, and this is what he says about defamatory speech. He says this, a defamatory word may be perfectly true, but we do not have to tell lies in order to defame. But the fact that it is true gives us no right to say it. True or false, it makes us superior to the other person so that as even the very form of James's verb suggests, we talk down to them, ourselves adopting a superior position. Defamation is forbidden, not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but as a breach of humility. If we really are low before God, we have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. You catch that? That slander doesn't have to just be untrue things. We can take very true things about each other and then just say them to other people and that brings them down. And James goes, that, even that. It's like, well, I'm just telling the truth about them. Yeah, but you're, you're destroying the character of that person. You're destroying that, rep, not really the character, you're destroying the reputation of that person and putting yourself in a place of judgment as though you're better, as though you've arrived, as though you're, you're, as though you're the man or you're the woman of God that's never stumbled and this kind of thing. So I love how clarifying that is for me. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of slander and gossip. I have, and it genuinely hurts. And it's damaging on so many levels. At the foundational level, Here's why it's so damaging. It's because the person that's being gossiped about ends up maybe even believing those things about themselves. And when Christians do it, when we slander each other, we're assigning an identity to them. But in the gospel, we get our identity as God's children. So when we slander each other, we're just saying horrible identity statements about each other. And James goes, this isn't right. They might be wrong. They might have done that. They might be, yeah. But it's our responsibility to lean into Jesus and into the Spirit and to remember that the person we're tempted to speak ill about is still made in the image of God, is still someone Jesus loves, 
and is still someone that could end up perhaps even being your friend. So when we learn about each other's sins and failures and shortcomings and all of that, those are not moments for us to file away later for gossip and make ourselves feel better about ourselves, but rather those are moments that when you hear about someone's brokenness, that becomes an opportunity for you to steward their story. Does that make sense? To actually steward their story, not spread it, but to steward it. So rather than speaking poorly, we're called to carry their brokenness as if it were our own. And if you're in Christ, it is. It also means that when someone comes to you with gossip or slander, you assume the role of a servant of Jesus and you lead in a different direction. And it's okay, brothers and sisters, if someone comes to you and wants to say something ill and evil about someone else, it's not only okay, but it's right in that moment to go, hey, 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 I'm not going there. I don't want to talk about that. If you have a problem with that person, Jesus says go talk to that person face to face. Sort it out. Don't tweet it out, (laughs) please. (laughs) And don't go talk to everybody else about it. Just go to them and talk face to face. Just talk. I love that. So, when you hear slander and gossip in our church, we're not a perfect church. I don't hear lots of gossip and slander, and I pray we never do. But if you hear it, feel free to just stop the conversation and say, we're not going down that road. And God is glorified when we find other things to talk about because there's a lot to talk about. If you're going to gossip anything, gossip about the gospel. <laughs> That'd be great. Spread that word. Um, <laughs> So, but why? Why is it so tempting to speak evil against each other? What are we exactly seeking? Two things, essentially. One, it simply just makes us feel better about ourselves. And two, we actually think we're building a friendship with the person to whom we're gossiping with about the other person that's a screw up. So, one, when we slander and gossip, we're looking for a way to make ourselves feel better and look better than the person we're we're talking poorly about. That is, as long as I'm talking poorly about you, I don't have to look at areas in my life in which I need to grow. Gossip and slander gives us this false impression that I'm really mature and I'm not as bad as that guy. When in the reality, the moment you're slandering someone and you think you're growing in maturity, ironically, you're exposing your own immaturity. So this is where James gets so convicting as if we're not all just like, good gosh. (laughs) I'm never talking bad about anybody again. (laughs) But like, this is where James gets convicting because he's willing to say, you confess all these things about God and you've got all this stuff in your head, but when it comes time for the rubber to hit the road, you somehow have grown content with a theory-only theology that says these things, God thinks these things about these people, but I'm not gonna say it. And James says, repent.
So this is something we have to be mindful of, not only inside our church here at Redemption and mindful of other churches around our city, but online. There's stuff everywhere all the time and opportunities to speak evil against one another. And so, church, here at Redemption, God's been very gracious to us. He's been unbelievably gracious to us with our community, our ministries, finances, mission, and all these just like wonderful things God is doing. Here's one thing, having been a pastor for a little while now, um, it can, a spirit can creep into the church where we start to think, well, at least we're, look how good we're doing. We're kind of better than so-and-so. And that's the attitude right there that just runs the Holy Spirit off. It grieves him. But rather, when we look at other brothers and sisters online or in our neighborhood and throughout our country, that it's our responsibility to continually speak up and build up everyone around us at all costs. And that's hard. It's hard, especially when we're wounded. But that's what we're called to. And so what God wants and what our city needs to see is just that. In fact, that is the test of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus did not say, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If your systematic theology and biblical theology and all your apologetics are down, uh, then they'll know. No, no, no. They'll, they'll, no. they'll know you're my disciples when you go plant churches in Thailand. No. They'll know, they'll know you're my disciples when you open an orphanage. No. They'll know you're my disciples when you serve at a soup kitchen. No. Jesus doesn't say just those things and give you something so specific. He makes it broad enough to encompass your whole life. By this, people will know you're my disciples. By your love that you have for one another. And the only way or the fastest way to give demonstration to whether or not you're a disciple of Jesus is in how we use our tongues and whether we're not going to speak evil of one another. Should we serve in all those places? Absolutely. But those things alone don't tell us that we're disciples of Jesus. First and foremost, it is our love for others. Does that make sense? So as long as we speak evil to each other or about each other, the world will dismiss our Jesus as just another teacher who lacks the power to actually change us. As long as we speak evil about each other, the world will dismiss our Jesus as another teacher who actually lacks the power to change us. So, where do we start? Here's where we start. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine how attractive that would be in our city today. I mean, this is the only time, by the way, where Christians, in Romans 12, verse 10, where Christians are actually challenged to compete with each other. <laughs> Everywhere else we're told to serve each other. Paul says, you want to compete? You, you, some, some of you, are you an eight on the Enneagram or whatever? Like, you want to you compete? You want to be the best? You want to, you know, whatever? Paul's like, get good at this. Get good at this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Compete at that. Outdo one another in giving preference to one another and in, 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 in expressing interest in one another and putting others before yourself, considering others' interests better than your own. You want to compete at something? Get good at outdoing one another and showing honor. 
That's so unbelievable. So show honor. Speak up to people. Never down to people. Speak words of grace and truth. Never, never words of gossip and slander. Find ways to bless others. Find ways to lift someone else up a little higher. Find ways to ease the burden off your brother's or sister's back. Be intentional about celebrating other people's wins in their lives. Those kinds of things. Paul's going, outdo one another in showing honor. Here's the other thing I mentioned that's so deceptive about slander. Is that when we speak poorly about others and we're just trashing that other person, we actually buy into a lie that says, I'm building a relationship with you as long as, as we trash this person. But you're not actually building a real friendship. That is a bridge that will come crumbling down because the person who's talking against other people and gossiping to you, they will do that about you too. It just will. We've all lived long enough. Did anybody go to middle school? That's how it works. So, so in reality, real friendship is never found on slandering someone else. Authentic friendship is always found on the ground of truth and humility. Are you lonely? Do you need a friend? Do you know how to make a friend? Do you know how to keep a friend? Maybe you've read C.S. Lewis's book on, called The Four Loves. When he talks about friendship, it's, it's awesome. He says, do you know the moment a friendship is actually born? It's not when you're both sitting on the mountaintop where you've got trophies and millions of bucks and it's the greatest day of your life. He says, that's not where friendship is born. You want to know where friendship is born? He says, it's when you're sitting at a table and you look across in a conversation and you say the word, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. Friendship is born where people steward each other's scars. Where we can steward our pain. Where you can go, I didn't know your heart hurt like that. I've been through something like that too. He goes, that's where a friend is actually born. That's where friends are made. Not in slander. Not in talking poorly about so and so. But it's when you're actually being willing enough to be vulnerable with someone else and say, can you steward my story too? And that's where friends are made. <laughs> that's so awesome. Hmm. How attractive do you think that would be in the city of Seattle? Next verse. The one who speaks against another brother and judge, speaks against a brother and judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So maybe you're like me real quick and just go, hang on. How is my judgment of my brother or sister a judgment of God's law? I wasn't talking bad about Moses. I was talking bad about that guy. Like, how does that, how does my slander of that person have something to say? Why am I, why am I judging God's law? Well, here's how. First, Leviticus 19 says this. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right? Oh, by the way, if you think the law is purely about externals, read it again. It's about the internal. Bearing a grudge sounds quite internal. Next thing, uh, 
it says this in the two verses earlier, 1916, it says this, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So now I can see how I'm breaking the law, like I'm judging the law. Because when we slander one another, knowing that God has strictly commanded us not to, we're essentially dismissing the law and saying, oh, I'm a judge of the law going, no, what the law should have said is I can say whatever I want to say about whoever I want to say it to anybody I want to say it to. And at that point, James goes, oh, so you, you, you're now making yourself a judge of the law. That's how James's theology is working. So we're not just slandering each other. We're actually dismissing God's law altogether, insisting that we know best. So our side conversations in which we put each other down are not mere whisperings. God sees those as a rejection of his law, which is ultimately a rejection of his character and an insistence on our own. That's how James is speaking to this. So where does all this actually come from? And I'm just want to show you one thing because if you go to Bible college and seminary for as long as I did and you don't get to actually share some of this nerdy stuff, it's just not fair. So just put up with me for a moment. Um, In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, it says this, Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All right, so that's Proverbs 6, verse 16. We're asking, where does this temptation, where does all this stuff come from when it comes to slander? Throughout your Bible, there are these things by design that the authors of scripture did, and they're called chiasms. Chiasms are essentially literary devices in which sentences and paragraphs and even entire chapters of the Bible are arranged in such a way as to, to, to offset one primary point. And so I'll show you, like, here's an example. Show the next one. Look, when you break this scripture down, this is actually what it looks like, offsetting the point. So watch, and watch how they, they, they essentially mimic each other on both sides of basically this, these two staircases. Look, arrogant eyes corresponds to one who stirs up trouble. Lying tongue, lying witness. Hands that kill, feet that run. Where does all that come from? Solomon goes, oh, all this stuff shoots out of the heart. Isn't that awesome? Where's the temptation to speak evil come from? Where's the temptation to shed blood come from? Where's the temptation to just do what comes natural to us that offends God and hurts others? Oh, it all shoots directly from the heart of a human being. That's where it comes from. So then James says this, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who's able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? All right. So James reminds us, there's only one, one lawgiver. Exodus chapter 31, Moses comes down the mountain with the law of God. There's only one. Didn't come from an angel, doesn't come from a prophet or an apostle or a pastor or so-and-so. It actually came from God. Yes, written by Moses, inspired completely by God. James says, there is one lawgiver and you are not him. I am not him him. Moses is not him. 
We are not the ones who create morals. We are not the one who determines what holiness is. We are not the ones who can determine our own destinies. James, what he is getting at, he says, there is only one lawgiver. And so at the end of your life, you and I will not stand before our best friends and give an account. You will not stand before your spouse. You will not stand before your children. You will not stand before your coworkers. You will not stand before your Instagram followers who somehow watched your whole life and thought, man, that guy just lives an amazing life. Like, you won't lit, stand before any of these people and give an account. You won't stand before Moses or Elijah or St. Peter at the gates or all those kinds of things we think of. We'll stand before the one lawgiver. James says, church, listen. Slander and evil speech is serious. The fact that he brings judgment in is massive. So there is only one judge. And what is this lawgiver and judge able to do? Here's what he says. Able to save and able to destroy. How is God able to destroy? Because God is all-powerful and all-holy and all-knowing and is completely just. Every demon, Satan, principality, and power are all subject to God. He is able to destroy. The fact that he's able ought to send us to a place of holy self-examination to come face to face with our real life and to remember our place, to repent of our sins and to embrace the grace of God for all it is. And listen, I know how unpopular it is to talk about the judgment of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God. I know, I, I, I know. It wasn't popular in first century Rome at all um, and it's certainly not popular in 21st century Seattle. But listen, church, a God who is unholy and unjust and appears asleep at the wheel of the universe is not worthy of your worship. And so James lays it out. And we're left simply to cast ourselves at the mercy of God. So God's ability to destroy is one thing. We deserve it. God's ability to save is another. And here's where the gospel is. God was able to save Moses, though Moses could not even keep the law he wrote. God was able to save David though he gave in to his temptations. God was able to save Paul, though he had formerly persecuted the church. God was able to save James, though James did not believe in his older brother until after the resurrection. God was able to save Peter, who denied Jesus on the night of his betrayal. But how? How is God able to save any of us who speak evil against one another? Can I have just two minutes of your time and we'll go? Listen. How is God able to save us? There's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. 
You got one chance at the end of your life and it's facing him and you broke all his rules and you broke his heart and you broke his commands. What are we to do? We're left under the law, the weight of our sin, the wages of our sin is death and when we're honest, we know we deserve it. And here comes the God who is able to save. Those of us who have used our mouths in ways to tear others down, our hands to be greedy, our feet to carry us places they shouldn't have gone, all these things. Who can save? Oh, the God who is able to save. Karl Barth said it this way. The judge, the one judge, the judge has been judged in our place. The gospel is this, that though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every wrong word you've ever spoken spoken to or about someone, every wicked thought that's ever ran through your mind, that burst through your heart, all of those things God was mindful of and said, I love you anyway. Jesus clothed himself in flesh, walked among us, never speaking evil against anyone. Yes, saying true things, but never speaking evil. And then when Jesus went to Calvary, what were we looking at a couple weeks ago? As Jesus died on his cross, he breathed out forgiveness for those who nailed him to his cross. And again and again, Jesus intercedes for the least of these, for the broken ones, for the repeat offenders, the ones who can't seem to get our tongues under control. Jesus died for. And therefore, we no longer have to walk according to the pattern of this world, but we can walk by the power of the Spirit of God. That is so good. God is able to save. And I want you to remember today that not only is God able to save you, but God's able to save those in your neighborhood, your coworkers, people in this city matter. And those that you might be tempted to give up on and go, I don't think God will ever save him, <laughs> for sure. He absolutely has the power to save. He saved you. Are you really willing to say that that person's heart was harder than yours? God is able to save. I'll close with this last verse. John 3, verse 17. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world. I came to save it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you help us to not judge our neighbors, to not condemn others, but would you help us by grace to speak up and speak truthfully, and speak lovingly to others. Father, we pray for our church that we would continue to be mindful of speaking well of one another. When we're tempted, Father, to speak evil, would you help us to not do that? When we learn of things about others, would you help us to steward their stories in a way that can bring healing and hope rather than destruction? So, Father, I thank you for our church. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.